Here's another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, now at Canto 8 of Dante's Paradiso. Beatrice had finished talking at the end of Canto 7, and it seems that in between cantos, Dante and Beatrice have risen up to the next sphere, the sphere of Venus. And that's where we begin here. Dante spends the first three tercets speaking about the nature of Venus, the planet and the archetype. The pagan idea of Venus was that she represented, or even instigated, a compulsive erotic urge in us, pulling us out of control, moved to a kind of madness with passion. For example, Dante says, Virgil depicts Cupid, the son of Venus, sitting on the lap of Dido, the queen of Carthage. Aeneas has landed near Carthage on his tempestuous voyage from Troy to Italy, and Dido throws a big feast for him, during which she asks him to tell them about his adventures, and she takes his young son Ascanius on to her lap during all the time Aeneas is recounting his adventures. But Venus, who is Aeneas's mother and is trying to make sure that he faces no hostility in Carthage, arranges for Cupid to take over the form of Ascanius, and then this little god of love, sitting on her lap, infuses her with uncontrollable love for Aeneas, which will, in the end, lead to her suicide when Aeneas leaves town. Two things to take from this. First of all, notice that Dante does not hesitate to correct Virgil. It may make us remember that Virgil is not here. It seems, a long, it seems a long time since he was here, and although he meant so much to us in the earlier episodes, from our perspective after our engagement with the first seven cantos in the Paradiso, Virgil and the world he came out of seem far away. But also, and more importantly, this pagan idea of Venus is not the kind of love Dante's heavenly Venus offers us. We have here the ardor of love, but an ardor we can control and direct. We should control and direct. We'll see that the love found here is chiefly a movement outwards towards another for the good of the other person, a kind of blessing even. We are given the image of the planet in motion around the sun so that it is seen both as the morning star and the evening star which Dante presents as the planet wooing the sun, front and back, an image of thoroughgoing attraction. And it's also important to see that this love is not, in the pagan fashion, a mad attraction, but since the planet is revolving around the sun, this love has a center, a focus to keep it from swirling out of control. And then there's also the product of sexual love, generation, or children, and the canto will spend time near the end talking about the complexities of what we today would call heredity. And so after that little readjustment about Venus, the action resumes. Beatrice has grown brighter and more beautiful, by which Dante is able to discern that they have just risen to higher glory, shining more intensely in Beatrice's face and figure. Then the souls appropriate to this sphere come down to see Dante. They're coming from their home in the Empyrean, down to see this newcomer on Venus, travelling down faster than lightning. That's the ardour of love, after all. Someone new shows up, and you rush like lightning to meet the visitor. 
they're swirling around, some of them more intensely bright than others, circling around in their midst like a spark in a flame, or like a singer carrying the tune over the cantus firmus background. We can picture this as a circle of dancing lights with a variety of different intensities depending on each soul's own capacity for inner light. And here the dancing is accompanied by those lights closest to Dante singing out Hosanna as though with irrepressible joy. One of these souls breaks off from the others and comes to Dante speaking for all the rest of them. They've, they've rushed down, he says, to give joy to Dante so that he, in turn, can further their joy. They're circling with the principalities, that order of angels associated with this sphere. Their dancing is a great pleasure, but stopping the dance to spend a bit of time with Dante will also be a delight. So now Dante turns to that light who just spoke, with the old question, who are you? He cannot see the soul's face which is hidden in the light, or else he would have recognized Charles Martel, King of Hungary and other positions, with whom he had been friendly when Charles was visiting Florence six years before this story is taking place. Charles died the year after they met, at age 24, which means that at the most he has spent five years in purgatory, probably less. But Charles never gives his name, that is, he never directly answers Dante's question. But perhaps this is because he feels the relationship between them is so close that there's no need, like a good friend who phones you and doesn't have to say who he is. And so how does Charles reply, identifying himself only indirectly? First he speaks about his early death. The world had me only a short time. And then the remark that if he had lived longer, the world would have been spared a lot of the evil that has occurred recently. One thing in particular it would have spared, though this is not mentioned, only left for us to perceive, is Dante's exile. Had Charles lived, the forces ranged against Dante would never have been able to gain such power in Florence. But that event is to take place two years after the time this story is set. From this remark, he moves on to a geographical survey of the lands he once ruled. It's, it's a confusing passage, full of geographical locations, which may not mean very much to a reader, certainly not without notes. But one thing to notice is that it is much more localized than the areas just covered by Justinian, and while Justinian's survey was designed to show the victory of the Holy Empire, even in the presence of several counterforces, Charles's account focuses on the defeats, the loss of his own presence, which would have brought about a much more just rule over Italy than it was to have under the control of his brother Robert and the stingy nature he had even though he came from good stock. Dante replies not about the politics just mentioned, but simply about the joy he's felt in being with his old friend Charles, and the joy he feels knowing that his joy is seen and felt by Charles, the back and forth of a loving relationship. No need for that exclusively passionate sexual love that Venus used to be associated with. Dante is also delighted that Charles can see all this joy from his position here in heaven. <laughs> an, an elegant way of saying that Dante is glad to see that Charles's soul has been saved and is already here in heaven just five years after he died. But as we would expect, hearing what Charles has said raises more questions in Dante's mind. Charles had spoken of his brother Robert as being a bad ruler, though he'd come from good parents. 
How can this be? In other words, isn't our nature shaped by the quality of the parents who engender us? And so, now we're back in those scholastic explanations. But before he begins his explanation, Charles throws out an image that recalls the way Venus woos the sun by showing up behind him and in front of him. Here, Charles says that the question that is now behind Dante will, with Charles's explanation, soon be clear right in front of him. We start by going back to first causes. God carries out his plans by working through the movements of the planets, as we've been told a few times already. The point is here that God has a plan in mind. He creates the nature of our human souls and also the shape of our incarnated lives, the telos, or final end, or purpose of our lives. This creates the fundamental order of the world. If we didn't have this order, all we would have is chaos, and, and, and we cannot have chaos because that would imply some defect in the supreme power and the spheres he works through. And then we get something new. Charles shifts the argument into a dialogue, almost a Socratic dialogue, but also one common in scholastic philosophy. Is this clear, he asks. W would you like me to clarify any of it? Like, like a lecturer who finishes and then asks if there are any questions. It's, it's a gesture of great courtesy, shifting the focus from the discussion itself to the relationship between the two of them. Oh no, Dante replies, I understand that nature can't grow tired of the work that has to be done. And then Charles continues, though it's still, it's still not quite clear what direction he's headed in. Would it be worse if human beings were not in community? Sure, it would be worse, Dante says, and I don't need any proof for that. Okay, that point granted, Charles moves on to his next point. If we agree that people need to be in society, can you have society without also having different tasks? What he means is that in order to have a coherent and orderly social world, we need some people to make the laws and some to enforce them, some to grow the food, others to distribute the food, and so on, through all the varieties of human occupations. These different occupations are formed and sealed by the spheres and their influence upon Earth. This is what we today would call people's aptitudes or talents, these inborn vocations that make us suited to one kind of job and not another. And these different attributes are applied irrespective of family ties. There are family attributes, of course, but providence shapes them to different ends. Thus, I, I suppose you can have two brothers who, by heredity, both have the ability of endurance. But their aptitudes are shaped differently. So one son takes his endurance and exercises it as a soldier in a tough regiment while the other son exercises his endurance by putting in long hours as a scholar, digging through arcane texts. I mean, if it wasn't like this, then all the children inheriting the parents' attributes would be similar and take up similar roles. And, and where would the necessary variety be then? Now what was behind you is in front of you, Charles concludes. He's answered the question, but he offers a corollary taking the argument a little further, and I think actually addressing the question Dante had asked. How could his brother Robert have been such a bad ruler if he came from good stock? It wasn't just that his aptitude was shaped to evil. Well, the point is that we have a person's aptitudes and talents, and we have the various roles and occupations in society, and we have to match the two appropriately. 
We shouldn't put someone who is clearly designed for a life of prayer into the position of a king, or shove someone with an aptitude for ruling into a secluded role of a monk. And yet we do this sort of thing all the time, and, and thus we destroy the good order of the world as it was designed to be. Charles has made his point, including that extra corollary, and with that he stops and the canto ends. The canto began unexpectedly with Dante's readjusting our understanding of the nature of Venus, or venereal love, which then shapes the events and discussions that follow. In the pattern we have seen many times, first a group of the souls appears, and then one of them is singled out to speak to Dante. Unlike Justinian, Charles does not dominate the canto, or even his discussion with Dante. This seems appropriate. Mercury was the sphere associated with intellectual discourse, and Justinian exhibits this in his speaking so much. But Venus' love delights in loving exchange, and Charles exhibits this, emphasizing perhaps the exchange with Dante itself more than what he is actually saying. He first identifies himself indirectly, and speaks about the unfortunate turn of events caused by his early death, and then he answers Dante's question about inherited character traits. Now one thing we may have noticed here is that Beatrice, like Virgil a few times, has nothing to say throughout the canto, and remains in the background, except for that one glance of encouragement, and except for the fact that she's shining even more brightly, and so is a noticeable presence even in the background. The souls we encounter here no longer have discernible features. They are enveloped in their own joyful light, like some of the angels we had seen on Mount Purgatory. For Dante, light, glowing, shining, these are the images he uses as the way we perceive a divine presence, the divine presence within these heavenly souls. Perhaps we today might more readily say we can feel a good presence in someone rather than see such a presence. I was wondering how often we actually do see someone else's light. Do we see the light in their eyes? Do we see someone glowing with pleasure? Literally glowing with pleasure, we might say. But let's return to those souls coming down to the sphere of Venus to see Dante. The way they come down, swirling around in a dance of joy, will seem a complete contrast to the way the damned souls in the circle of lust in hell were swirled around, compulsively, passively, buffeted by those infernal stormy winds. Francesca comes to speak to Dante because she cannot resist it, as Virgil had said. She has been afflicted with the pagan sense of the maddening power of passion, which she gave in to when she should have resisted. She speaks to Dante because, it seems, she is obsessed with the need to gain his sympathy for her plight. It's all about her. Charles Martel, however, comes, with the others, willingly down to see Dante, and he does not speak to Dante in order to gain anything for himself, but, as he says, so that his joy, their joy, can expand Dante's own joy. In fact, as much as they get their joy from joining in this heavenly dance, they're willing to step out of the dance now and find as much pleasure being with Dante as they had in the dance. This, <laughs> this we are learning is the way of heaven, an, an ever-increasing joy. I am joyful, and I want to share it with you, the true spirit of Venus' love. It's another version of conjoining, 
conjoining as an erotic act. Charles and the others want to join with Dante, eroticism transcending sexuality, becoming a conscious act of reaching out and coming together. Contrast this also to the souls in Purgatory, who, remember, kept rushing over to see Dante out of curiosity and out of desire for him to do them a favor, that is, pray for them or ask others to pray for them. But here on Venus, the souls are coming to do him a favor and share their joy. No quid pro quo, but just the pleasure of sharing. Here, have a bit of my chocolate bar. It tastes so good I want you to enjoy it too. Or, to give another example from our earthly life, is this like, say, a weekend party? A group of friends hire a house for the weekend. The first couple shows up, joyful at the thought of the weekend. And then another couple arrives, and their joy is increased as they greet the newcomers and perhaps show each other the food they've brought for the shared meals. Then more people arrive, and you can picture this. The noise grows louder as four or five conversations are going on at once, that kind of ever-increasing joy. And then let's hope as the weekend progresses, each new activity or event increases the good feeling, even the times of rest, with a deep contentment. It's their Venus moment, if, that is, if everything works out right, which, alas, is not guaranteed. They're not in heaven itself quite yet, and sometimes a weekend like this can turn into that other sense of the Venus power. And so what does Charles Martel, the speaker here, have to say in this venereal or Venusian atmosphere? After his initial greeting, on behalf of all the souls there, he addresses Dante's question of who he is. He doesn't give his name, but, as must have astonished Dante, he begins by quoting the first line of one of Dante's poems. You who, by understanding, move the third heaven. It's appropriate, because here they are at the third heaven, but there's something a little amiss here. This is a poem in which Dante had spoken of the angelic order on this sphere as the thrones, whereas, as Charles has just remarked, they're dancing there with another order of angels, the principalities. <laughs> this won't seem a big mistake in our eyes, probably, but it's a mistake, nevertheless. And what may be worse is that in this poem, Dante seems to be turning from Beatrice to another lover, Lady Philosophy. There can be much argument about what's going on at this point in the canto. Is it a reprimand, reminding Dante how he'd gone wrong, or a gentle correction, or even a bit of a tease, since he quotes the line, but then can appear to be saying, but don't worry, we won't start singing that poem in which you get the angels wrong and in which you turn away from Beatrice. But the one line from the poem is enough to get Dante to turn immediately to Beatrice, perhaps with a rueful smile, and for her to give a sign that it's okay. That poem was written by the old Dante. He's repented of all that in the Purgatorio. Charles identifies himself with a geographical survey, indicating his position as the head of three different dominions, Provence, Naples, and Hungary. We're back to the world of European politics, now not focused on the Roman Empire, but on the more local issues of power struggles over Italian lands. And we're connected back to Canto VI, not just with the political theme, but also, though Dante doesn't mention it, because this Charles Martel was the great-grandson of that Raymond Berenger, Count of Provence, who
who raised Romeo de Villeneuve to his chief steward and then accepted the claims of barratry made against him, driving Romeo to leave the court. Charles's sense of politics here is also concerned with loss and also points to Dante's exile. If I hadn't died so soon, he says, your fortunes would not suffer, as they will suffer in that looming exile which Dante keeps hearing hints of as he's proceeding on his journey. As it was, however, Charles died, and the control passed to his brother Robert. Same family, different way of ruling, alas, for Dante and for the state of all Italy. And that takes us to Dante's final question. We've looked at the larger sweep of history with Justinian's survey, but now we focus much more narrowly on individuals who are the agents by which history is shaped. Why do things so often go so wrong? I think I helped clarify the argument just before, but, but here, are, here are a few further thoughts. It has to do with the variety of things in the world. We have seen the need for unity, especially in Justinian's emphasis on the unity found in having an empire, and in what we've learned about the heavenly souls all united in community. But a community needs variety, or it will just be boring. Picarda had accepted variety as the differences in degrees, and Justinian had said that the souls on Mercury rejoice in being part of the diverse unity of heaven. Now we see how that variety works out on Earth, where it could lead to an ideal society, but it gets corrupted by our mistaken actions. We just don't see clearly enough what is best for the child, like so much else in God's creation, the delicate balance between determined lives and free will can be easily broken and things can go wrong. Now how does this fit the case of Robert? After Charles died, his brother Louis should have inherited the positions Charles had been holding, but for reasons we needn't go into. Louis resigned these claims and became a Franciscan friar, leaving the inheritance to the next brother, Robert. <laughs> On a personal note, I'm pleased to see that Charles had two brothers named Robert and Louis. Robert was known as a wise and learned man, both in theology and philosophy, and a cultivated patron of the arts. But he became king, a task he was not suited for, giving the lands a weaker ruler than they should have had. Is there a fault to be found here? Is anyone to blame? I can't see any blame, unless it was Louis for making the wrong choice. It may all be attributed just to human fallibility and blindness. Hence the need to see more carefully, here on earth as also in heaven. By the way, encountering Charles is the first time in the Paradiso that Dante gets to meet an old friend. He knew Picarda when she was alive, but she was not a friend, only the sister of a friend. This encounter with Charles is comparable to Dante's meeting with Brunetto Latini in Hell and with Foresi Donati in Purgatory. In both episodes, Dante walked along with the other, continuing the conversation. But he doesn't walk along with Charles. I mean, no one's walking anywhere here in heaven, only dancing and, and mostly in circles. But notice that Charles says he's delighted to stop dancing for the increase in joy that being with Dante will give him. And the very method of their discourse is an example of variety and unity. They are together, but there's a difference between them, if only because Charles now knows everything and Dante is only learning. Hence the back-and-forth dance, a feature we've seen occasionally with Beatrice 
but not with any other solo so far. This question and answer is a kind of conjoining, isn't it? A manifestation of the Venus love that reaches out to join with another for the pleasure of, well, of, of enjoying variety in unity, right? What strikes me, though, is that there is no leave-taking. Charles makes his point and stops, and the canto ends. But we find out in the next canto that the two of them had discussed other things, which we can learn only hints of. Come back next time as we continue here on Venus. See you then. <laughs>